0: Hi and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez and this is episode 6. When we ride on our enemies. Last time, we took a look at the further consolidation of power by the Umayyad Caliphate in the Iberian Peninsula. We also covered the very early stages of the Kingdom of the Asturias and of the Umayyad conquests in southern Septimania. And yes, I was saying that name wrong last time, it's Septimania, not Septimiana, sorry about that. This episode we will begin by picking up where we left off last time, and get into the conflicts between the Franks and the Arabs. Now why exactly are we taking this detour? Well, the Arab conquests and raids into Francia caused a chain reaction that would have serious implications for both the Christian and Muslim kingdoms of Iberia. So, it's important for us to at least have a general understanding of the events that unfolded. And now, let's get started. Duke Udo was in a difficult position. His Duchy of Aquitaine was right in the middle of two problems. To the northeast lay Charles Martel, martel meaning hammer, since apparently he smashed all his enemies, and to the south and southeast, the newly arrived Umayyad Caliphate. See, Udo had just been part of a military coalition that rebelled against the overarching Frankish-Merovingian rule that Charles was expanding and enforcing. That war came to an end in 719 AD at the Battle of Soissons, with the end result being a victory for Charles, and a kind of nominal submission, but not really, from a still independent Udo. It seems that Udo was not happy with the arrangements made and was still quite hostile towards Charles. Charles, for his part, at this point had bigger problems to deal with than the Aquitanians. He was waging campaigns against the Frisians, the Saxons, and the Alemanni in order to expand and secure his borders, as well as to establish his authority over the Frankish realm. Which pretty much left him too occupied to really worry about what was happening in Aquitaine. For now. About a year or so later, Udo's other problem showed up at his doorstep. Our old friend and governor-at-large, al had been quite busy since the conquest of Septimania. Now that Narbonne was firmly in Muslim hands, al Sama then proceeded to subdue most, but not all, of the major urban centers in the province. Once this consolidation process was underway, al Sama then returned to Al-Andalus to begin building up a large army, with a very specific goal in mind. That goal being the assault and conquest of Toulouse. A major city of the Duchy of Aquitaine. It's theorized that Alsama's long term ambition was to utilize the city of Toulouse in the same manner he used Narbonne, as a base of operations and as a springboard to launch more raids and possible wars of conquest deep into Frankish held lands. It's said that Alsama's army consisted of many siege engines, infantry, a limited amount of cavalry, and large numbers of mercenaries. In the spring of 721, with his military numbers bolstered, al led his army back to Septimania and then westward towards Toulouse. Hearing that a large Muslim army was heading his way and fast, Duke Udo now had a decision to make. He could either stay and lead the defense of the city, or leave and make a mad dash to raise reinforcements. He chose to leave Toulouse and set about desperately looking for reinforcements throughout Aquitaine. This would take time, but Udo was probably hoping that the formidable defenses of his city would buy him enough time to get help. One of the people he turned to for help, surprisingly, was the same guy he had just been fighting against until very recently, Charles Martel. And that must have been quite the humiliation. I mean, can you imagine having just fought a vicious war and now having to ask for help from the guy you were just trying to depose? And to make matters worse, even after begging for help, Charles replied to Udo with the 8th century equivalent of this sounds like a you problem. Because Charles had much bigger plans. Charles was playing the long game, and this game included the eventual subjugation of Aquitaine. So, from his vantage point, letting the Aquitanians get clobbered around and weakened by the Arabs was not only not a bad turn of events, but a stroke of good fortune. Even with this refusal, Udo was undeterred, and so, for the next three months, he continued to travel through his domain. Calling on all of his nobles and levies to come to his aid. Alsema's siege of Toulouse was going pretty well. Despite the impressive fortifications and strong garrison, the encirclement of the city was paying dividends, as it became increasingly obvious that hunger was gripping the city. It was just a matter of time until Toulouse was his. Then, on June 9, 721, Al-Samaa received a report that a Christian cavalry contingent was spotted about an hour away. al sama rushed to get his infantry in line and prepared for the cavalry assault, managing to set up a defensive line just barely in time as Udo and his cavalry came into sight. Udo launched his cavalry into a headlong charge, crashing into the Umayyad defensive line Reportedly, the fighting was desperate and savage on both sides. But in this battle, numbers made the difference. The Aquitanian cavalry was heavily outnumbered and was unable to make any headway towards the city. Duguido had no choice but to withdraw. However, a critical detail regarding Alsama's forces is that. Unlike previous Umayyad armies, Al-Sama's army did not have much of a cavalry to speak of. So when Uddo's cavalry retreated, Al-Sama did not have a force suitable to pursue him. Cavalry shortage aside, this skirmish victory did a lot to lift the morale of the Umayyad army. Because actually, on his way to Toulouse, Al-Sama had attempted to take the city of Carcassonne. However. That siege had proved to be too lengthy and just too difficult. Consequently, al decided to lift the siege and move on to the primary target of Toulouse. So when the Umayyads beat back the Aquitanian Relief Force, it was just the shot in the arm they needed. Pressure must have been building for the three months they were encamped around the city, with the usual anxieties that plague besieging armies. Were there Christians coming to try and save the city? How much longer were these heathens going to hold out for? How much longer will our supplies last? Sources mention that after this skirmish, the atmosphere of the Umayyad camp began to visibly relax with an almost celebratory mood starting to bubble. And can you blame them? After months of simmering tension, I would think that it was only natural for the men of the Umayyad army to breathe a collective sigh of relief. The Aquitanian rescue attempt had failed, and the defenders of the city were on their last legs. Victory was at hand. But this relaxed mood came at a price. Sources indicate that after the battle, oddly, Alsama took no precautions in fortifying his position against possible future attacks. He did not post pickets, nor did he have his scouts patrolling the perimeter looking out for enemy forces, which was pretty standard practice for organized armies since the days of antiquity. This overconfident lapse in judgment would cost Alsama and his army dearly. Because, contrary to what they believed, this battle wasn't over. It perhaps should have been somewhat of a red flag to Al-Samani's officers that it was strictly a cavalry force that attacked them earlier. See, Udo was successful in raising a substantial armed force made up of vassals and allies that responded to his call for aid. While on his way back to Toulouse at the head of his newly raised army, he allegedly got word that the city was extremely close to surrendering. So, he gathered his cavalry contingent and raced to Toulouse in the hope that he could prevent or at least delay the fall of the city. Although Udo's cavalry charge failed at his intended goal, the effect his retreat had on the Umayyad army was invaluable. As nighttime descended upon the Umayyad camp, the besiegers went about their business completely unaware of the Aquitanian army that was creeping into position that would allow them to encircle and attack the Muslim camp from all sides. Suddenly, the call to charge rang out. The whole army charged out of the darkness barreling towards the Umayyad camp. In a panicked realization of the enormity of his error, Al-Samad desperately attempted once again to organize a defensive line. But it was too late. The Aquitanian army smashed into the Muslim camp, cutting down and slaughtering all they encountered, while the chaotic sounds of men fleeing and fighting and dying filled the air. This was an unmitigated disaster for the Umayyads. Al-Sama barely escaped the battlefield with his life, but he was mortally wounded. Sources claim that hundreds of thousands of Umayyads were killed that day. Though, of course, these numbers are inflated, there is little doubt that the casualties were in the thousands. The shattered remnants of the Umayyad army were led back to Narbonne by Al-Sama's second-in-command, a man by the name of Abdel Khalman. Shortly after arriving, al sama succumbed to his wounds. Once again, after only two or three years, Al-Andalus lost its governor. Though this defeat was a major one, it didn't dissuade the Arabs from continuing their raids. What it did do was redirect the raids to different locations. In the same year of 721, a new Arab governor was appointed for Al-Andalus. Anbasa ibn Suhaim al-Kalbi. Allegedly, one of the first things Anbasa did upon taking up office was to double the taxes on the Christians and confiscate Jewish property. This insanely high tax hike predictably caused nothing but problems for the new governor. With widespread and scattered acts of disobedience and, in some cases, such as with our friend Pelagius even outright revolts. Anbasa is also noted for being the one responsible for the conquest of both the city of Carcassonne and the city of Nîmes. It's also during his governorship that the Umayyads conducted raids deep into Frankish territory, going up the Rhone and Son Valleys into Burgundy, sacking the city of Autun by 725 A.D., And these series of raids are illustrative of a point I mentioned in episode 1, how geography frames and shapes history. Since the Umayyad defeat at Toulouse, they were hesitant to venture west. So basically, the only other direction open to them really was north, through a long corridor of valleys that were created by the Alps on the east and the massive central on the west. Though they did range quite far in their raids, it seems like raiding was the only objective of these expeditions and not conquest. For the next five or so years, Al Andalus went through six different governors, until in 730 AD, our old pal Abdel Khalman was appointed governor, and if you don't remember him, he was Al Sama's second in command during the Battle of Toulouse. Around this time, An interesting development occurred. If you recall last episode when we covered Pelagius' revolt, I mentioned that the first Muslim authority figure to respond was a Berber by the name of Manuza. By this point, Manuza was the deputy governor of Catalonia, a region located in the eastern Pyrenees. It's speculated that in that same year of 730 that Manuza heard about the massive amount of discontent And disillusion that was rippling through the Berber populations across North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. See, it was starting to become increasingly obvious that the Arabs in charge back in Damascus had little regard for the Berbers in general. And despite the promises and deals made back in the time of the conquest of North Africa, the Berbers were not seen or treated as equal and full members of the Islamic world. We will address the issue of Berber mistreatment and its bloody consequences next episode. But suffice it to say that animosity between the Berbers and the Arabs was well on its way to boiling over into full-fledged revolt. It’s within this context that Manuza, probably fed up with everything, went into open revolt and declared independence from the Caliphate. Establishing for himself the lordship of Catalonia. This move had an unexpected consequence. See, while these events were unfolding, back in Francia, Charles Martel had been quite busy thoroughly smacking around his neighbors the Phrygians, the Saxons and the Alemanni into submission, which meant that he could once again start working on forcing Aquitaine into the Frankish kingdom. And this fact left Udo in a perilous position, surrounded by enemies. Therefore, he needed to secure his borders as much as possible. Menuza was in a similar position, also surrounded by enemies. So, sometime in 730, Duke Udo and Menusa actually entered into an alliance by the duke giving his daughter in marriage to Menuza. In theory, this alliance would serve to prevent further Umayyad reinforcements from coming into Septimania through the Eastern Pyrenees. It was also a defensive alliance, so if one was attacked by their powerful neighbors, the other would come to his aid. But as the saying goes, no plan of action survives contact with the enemy. Hamman was settling in as governor around the time that Udo and Manuza sealed their alliance. It's said that upon receiving the governorship he immediately started preparing for war against Udo in Aquitaine, and when he learned of the betrayal by Manuza, he made preparations to assault him first. Abdul put out the call throughout the Umayyad Empire that he was looking for volunteers to join him on a great campaign. Supposedly, Muslim volunteers came from all corners of the empire and his forces also included christian mercenaries and jewish infantry we don't know how big the army was exactly though some historians have estimated between 15 to 20000 troops as usual we just can't trust the sources on these numbers but they do convey that they had gathered a well organized and substantial force that definitely numbered in the thousands back in aquitaine Duke Udo was, as usual, worried about what Charles was planning. So he decided to meet with one of Charles' rivals to possibly discuss an alliance. Charles heard about this little meeting and, fearing an alliance between those two, he began mobilizing his forces near the Aquitanian border, forcing Udo to move his troops towards the border with Francia. Charles attacked and plundered a couple of Aquitanian towns though Udo recaptured them easily. It's thought that his intention was to send Udo a warning about allying himself with his Frankish rivals, though officially his justification for attacking Aquitaine was because of the alliance between Udo and Manuza. Meanwhile, Abdel Halman, satisfied with the army he had gathered, launched a lightning-quick surprise attack on Manusa utterly defeating him in battle. He then took the fortress of Livia and then cornered Manuza in the mountains where, allegedly, the rebel killed himself by leaping off of a cliff. It's speculated that Abdel Halman was probably aware of what was going on between Udo and Charles because he chose to strike right at a moment when there was no way that Udo could come to Manuza's aid. In any case, by early summer of 732, the Umayyads assembled in Pamplona, on the western side of the Pyrenees. This was a radical departure from what had become the norm with Arab raids, usually coming from Septimania in the east. It's been posited that he did this to purposely avoid Toulouse, where he and al had suffered their humiliating defeat. But this did mean that he and his army had to pass through Basque territory, which was a dangerous proposition no matter who you were. We have no recorded evidence as to why, but it seems like the Umayyad army passed through the treacherous mountain passes unmolested. This seems to indicate that there must have been some kind of agreement made beforehand to allow for safe passage of the army. Officially, al Halman's reason for attacking Udo was because of Udo's alliance with the rebel Manuza. But personally, and this is purely my own speculation, I think that Abd al was eager to revenge himself upon Udo. You gotta remember that he was there, at the disaster of Toulouse. So this was probably very personal as well as strategic. But speculation aside, once the Umayyads passed through the mountains, they spread out to inflict massive devastation, on every town they encountered. And they made sure to pay special attention to those monasteries and abbeys, since these were known to house valuable items. All the while, the Umayyad main army headed towards their primary target, Bordeaux. Hearing of the Umayyad's explosive entrance through the Pyrenees, Udo's main concern was to defend his capital of Bordeaux, So once again, he was faced with the choice of either defending the city from the inside and risk getting trapped there, or face his enemies out in the open. Perhaps thinking of his victory in Toulouse 11 years earlier, Udo decided to make his stand outside the city. But this time, the Aquitanians were resoundingly defeated, with high casualties, but Udo and a fair number of his troops managed to escape the slaughter. One of the main reasons why the Umayyads were able to win this time so handily is because Abd al-Halman learned his lesson from the Battle of Toulouse. The last time the Umayyads faced Udo, they barely had any cavalry and their infantry was lightly armoured. But this time, Abdelhalman made sure to bring with him a sizable and experienced cavalry force, as well as heavier arms and armor for his infantry. Having vanquished the defenders, the Umayyads entered Bordeaux, where they proceeded to burn churches, capture and kill civilians, and of course, steal as much loot as possible. Once they were done, the Umayyads then headed southeast towards the city of Agen, where evidence seems to indicate that Udo had fled to with the remainder of his army in order to defend the city. But this defense too was insufficient. So once again, Udo's forces were crushed by the Umayyads. Udo managed to escape, but this time with little more than his personal guard. The Aquitanians had just been dealt two massive blows. And this time, there was no other Aquitanian army to come to the rescue. So, what to do? Ducudo decided that it was best to ask for help from the devil he knew. He swallowed a gigantic bitter pill and headed north to meet with none other than Charles Martel to once again beg for help. There are no details pertaining to their meeting. What we do know is that after this meeting, Charles agreed to help under the condition that Udo submit himself and his duchy to the authority of the Frankish king. Having no choice, really, Udo agreed. Charles then issued a general military summons in order to amass the largest armed force possible. This was accomplished with remarkable speed. Another reminder of how Frankish society in general was geared and prepared for war every season. Once enough troops gathered, Charles headed towards the powerful city of Tours. It's thought that he headed there in order to protect the extremely important Basilica of St. Martin. Although the exact location is hotly debated, we know that Charles encamped somewhere near the city. Coming off of their smashing victories, the Umayyads spent the next three months having a grand old time, ranging through Aquitanian territory unopposed, sacking and looting whatever towns struck their fancy. Once they were done with that particular raiding, Abd al then decided to head north, possibly with the intention of attacking the city of Tours. The showdown was at hand. Once the Umayyads arrived, sources indicate that the two armies clashed alongside a Roman road. But there was a long standoff period before the battle actually happened. Both sides encamped on opposite sides of the River Vienne, where, for several days, both armies skirmished and maneuvered around each other. That is, until Charles decided to make his move and cross the river which he apparently did unhindered. The battle that followed is described by several sources, but we run into the issue of extreme bias and poetic license in these descriptions. The usual tactic that the Umayyads would employ in these situations would be to entrench in a defensive position and wait for the enemy to attack, withdraw, and then launch a planned counterattack. This time, however, the Umayyads attacked the Frankish camp first, sending their heavy cavalry in a direct charge against the Frankish line, but they were unable to break it. Charles Martel then counterattacked with a cavalry flank on the Umayyad camp led by none other than Duke Udo and his remaining cavalry force. Once the Umayyads realized that their camp was under attack, discipline broke down, and despite orders to the contrary, They pulled back to defend their camp, where, you know, all their stuff was. It's thought that during the defense of the camp, that Abdelkhamman was struck by a javelin and mortally wounded. The Christian assault on the camp had been repulsed, though at great cost. We have no record of who took over command of the Umayyads following the death of their leader. Whoever it was had some hard decisions to make, They were in hostile enemy territory. Their leader was dead. And they had an enormous amount of plunder that would significantly slow them down if they were to withdraw. So, once again, what to do? The commander in charge decided to secretly retreat under the cover of darkness, which was a pretty good idea. But in order to fool the Christians, they left their camp intact, their tents up and the lamps lit, and in order to prevent immediate pursuit, the Umayyads made the tough choice of leaving all the loot and prisoners behind in the camp. And the plan worked. The next day, Charles and his army drew up for battle, charged the Umayyad camp only to find it abandoned, but crucially, laden with treasure. This effectively put an end to the whole thing. Charles's troops, now that much wealthier, all clamored to go back home with little or no incentive to pursue the retreating army. The Umayyads, for their part, withdrew in good order, all the way back to their base in Arbonne. The most immediate consequence of the battle for Al-Andalus was the death of Abd al It was quite a loss. He was universally respected as governor, as general, and as a pious Muslim. This battle, known by two names, the Battle of Poitiers and the Battle of Tours, suffered the same fate as the Battle of Covadonga that we discussed last episode. Church and court propagandists, either in the employ of Charles or wanting to ingratiate themselves to him, elevated this battle to mythical proportions. where. Christ himself worked through Charles to defeat the Muslims. It's pretty handy being known as the instrument of God, you know? The narrative that the Battle of Poitiers was the battle that quote-unquote stopped the Arabs from invading Europe was pushed for centuries. And it was pretty brilliant for Charles and his successors to keep pushing that story. Because not only does it wrap Charles in the mantle of savior of Francia, but savior of all Christendom. But I'm sorry to tell you that modern scholarship does not agree with the view that Charles was the one who convinced the Umayyads that further conquest was more expensive than it was worth. The more modern view is that it was actually the Battle of Toulouse fought against Duke Udo that marked the end of Arab expansion in Europe. According to more current estimates, the Battle of Toulouse had a significantly higher Umayyad death toll than the Battle of Poitiers. So many lives were lost after Toulouse that the battlefield was known as the Field of the Martyrs for the next 4 centuries by the Muslims. Something else to take into consideration is that Al-Sama when he attacked Toulouse he had the objective of conquest When we look at the behavior of the Umayyads preceding the battle with Charles, they were not establishing garrisons and taking towns, even though they could have. They were raiding, pure and simple. And I'm not saying this to minimize the significance of Poitiers, but to bolster the significance of Toulouse. We will leave the Umayyads right here for now, licking their wounds, regrouping and figuring out what comes next. And what comes next will not be pretty, as Berbers across the empire finally hit their boiling point and say, enough is enough. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.